Oh, great. There's the picture. So you see Joseph in the red gown and cap, and then right next to Joseph is, um, is Peter and Degwa, who we, uh, who we support. Peter's a humble, gentle man of God, but when he stands and preaches the word, it's incredible to hear him. Uh, and then the two gentlemen to the left, I'm not sure who they are. Uh, I would assume someone in his home community. So anyway, this is Joseph. Uh, praise God for what he's doing in Kenya, in Nairobi, in Joseph's life through Peter. <clears throat> As we, uh, thank you Dale for working that out. As we look into scripture this morning, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke. We begin a series in the Gospel of Luke now. I'm excited about preaching through the Gospel of Luke. The title of the message today is just the Gospel of Luke. It's an overview. And I, I wanted to begin here and give us an overview uh, because what we see in the Gospel of Luke is we see this major theme in all the Gospels, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And this morning, I, I really want us to see that Jesus intends to use Christians to advance his kingdom in the world. You see, that's the underlined word, Christians. But we could substitute there uh, maybe our name. Jesus intends to use Nick to advance his kingdom in the world. Jesus intends to use me to advance his kingdom in the world. That's one of the things I want us to see as we walk through this story and the gospel of Luke. As we prepare to walk through Luke, we're going to kind of jump to the end of the text today. You see it there on the outline in chapter 24, verses 13 through 49. But before we do, I wanted to begin by giving us a little bit of background information and just kind of helping to set the stage. So, so bear with me for a few minutes uh, as I just give a few facts, but facts that I think that are applicable for our lives, uh, for our walk with Jesus, and our approach to the study of the Gospel of Luke. We live in a day and age where seeing is believing. We have devices that allow us to capture what we see just in case we want to share that memory with other people. But for most of history, video recording has not existed, right? We know this. Historically, the way that history has been recorded and passed down first through oral tradition or word of mouth, and, and then by picture or sketches or maybe art, and then through, through writings. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke sets out to provide an accurate historical account of Jesus' life and ministry. And in his prologue of chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he sets out to show that faith in Jesus rests on historical facts which stand up under the most severe scrutiny. Listen to verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, meaning that people have already written there are things that have been put together, historical facts and documents that have been put together to show who Jesus was, or to speak about who Jesus was. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, so that there are also eyewitnesses, people who walked with Jesus, who have given us this word, who have testified and given us testimony about it. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time, pa for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Maybe Theophilus was a new convert. 
certainly a Roman official most likely. Uh, he, Luke begins and sets out to write an orderly account, a historical account. And so in the Gospel of Luke, he, he sets out to provide this historical, accurate account of Jesus' life. Luke has written his account of the gospel to tell the story of Jesus' advent, right? What we just celebrated over the Christmas holidays, over the time of December, the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. He's writing to tell how Jesus is and has come to be the Savior of the world, to tell of all that his coming accomplished and all that his coming is still accomplishing. Luke is careful to give a firsthand testimony through the eyes of those who walked with Jesus. He was a well-educated Gentile who was a doctor. We learn that from other places in Scripture. He was a friend of the Apostle Paul. He traveled with Paul extensively, and he wrote two volumes in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and what else did he write? Anyone know? The book of Acts. Yeah, so Luke and Acts. And if you notice, in the beginning of Acts, he also addresses it to Theophilus. It's likely that Luke wrote his Gospel late 50s, early 60s. He was with uh, he was with him in the end in Second Timothy chapter 4, which we recently walked through when Paul was there at his last imprisonment. We know that the book of Acts ends at Paul's first imprisonment. Second Timothy talks about how Paul is on death row. He, has, he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race. He says, only Luke is here with me when he writes to Timothy. So there's some things that we can piece together, but, but I, I think there are at least five major themes of interest for Luke in writing his gospel account. And so I've listed them there on the paper. Uh, you can see them. You can kind of go back through and, and trace that out. And, and I want this to kind of be the, the broad umbrella that we approach Luke under, and we see a few different themes. One is God's universal work. Luke emphasizes the universal and comprehensive nature of God's dealing with the world. Like Matthew, Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus back through David, back to Abraham, to show the fulfillment of God's covenant. God is a faithful God, and he wants to show the fulfillment of God's covenant to his chosen people, Israel. But then Luke also continues to trace the ancestral line of Jesus all the way back, and if you look in chapter 3, verse 38, you see that he traces it all the way back to son of Adam, son of God. Jesus is son of Adam, son of God. Luke makes clear that Jesus is the means of God's ordained plan for redeeming all nations of the earth, not just the Jews. Chapter 2, verse 10, the angel's proclamation to the shepherds. The angel said to them, fear not, but for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. God has a universal plan at work. But secondly, Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is another theme that Luke sets out to show us in his gospel. From the announcement of the angels in chapter 2, verse 11, to his final appearance, all the way at the end in chapter 24, verses 46 through 47, after his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus is seen as the only one who can provide forgiveness of sin and the one who can give new life. This was the message of Jesus' life and preaching ministry. He came to preach good news and the favor of God that would come through his death and resurrection. 
This is good news for us, and as we walk through the story of the Gospel of Luke, we'll see how this good news impacts our lives and changes us, transforms us, why it's such good news that we can now enter into God's presence. We as sinful humanity can have a way that our sin is covered, forgiven, and now enter into God's holy presence. Jesus is Savior of the world. Thirdly, we, we see this theme, the events of Jesus' early life. This is really most intriguing to me. It's highly likely, even probable, that Luke received his information from firsthand sources like Mary, the mother of Jesus, because he gives us so many unique details about Jesus' early years. Luke gives us this window into the childhood of Jesus where we learn things like in chapter 2, verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. We learned about his remaining behind in the temple when his family had traveled on and Mary coming back and saying, we've been looking for you. And he said, did you not know that I'd be about my father's business? Think what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph to raise a child like Jesus. I mean, he's careful to say that he was submissive to Mary and Joseph. But we get some interesting things we learn a little bit about Jesus's early life. We can think of Luke as a reporter as we read through the gospel of Luke. He's tracking down people so he can interview them. When he was in, when he was in Palestine with Paul, he would have been in a position to meet with and speak with Mary. And it makes sense because Luke is the only gospel who records events surrounding John the Baptist's birth, things like the fact that Elizabeth John the Baptist's mother was Mary's relative. We learned that from the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the only one to record the following. You can see the list there, the Annunciation to Mary, Mary's visit to Elizabeth in chapter 1. Chapter 1, Mary's Magnificat. That's her song. The, the birth and the childhood of John in verses 57 through 80. The birth of Jesus, the, the coming of the shepherds and the announcement of the angels in chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. The circumcision of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 21. The presentation of Jesus in the temple. The praise of Simeon and Anna in the temple. The comments regarding the childhood of Jesus, verse 40, and then 51 through 52. The trip to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12 years old, verses 41 through 50. All of these things are unique to Luke. And this is about the kind of the window of, of Jesus' childhood, and it makes sense that he would get information from Mary. The fourth theme is the place of women in Jesus's ministry. Luke's gospel highlights how Jesus set an example with regard to the treatment and the role of women. In a male-dominated society, Jesus's treatment and value of women was unprecedented. At many points, Jesus included women not only as recipients of his ministry and in healing them, but also as co-laborers in ministry. From the praise of Anna the widow at Jesus' presentation in the temple, which Luke records for us in chapter 2, to Joanna in chapter 8, verse 3, the wife of Cusa, Herod Antipas' steward, to even Mary sitting at his feet, learning with the men in, Mark chapter, I mean in Luke chapter 10, when Martha is aggravated that her sister Mary is not helping with the chores. She's sitting there learning at the feet of Jesus. Jesus included women in his ministry. 
Joanna was among the women at the cross and as one of the first to witness the empty tomb. In total, there are at least 14 different passages that significantly point to a woman's role in Jesus' ministry. And so it's clear that, that women played an active role in Jesus' ministry and that he often cast women in his parables in a favorable light. In fact, Jesus includes women in the gospel story because they play an important role in the story. In fact, gospels record that it was women who were the first witnesses to validate Christ's resurrection. And in a day and age where, uh, where women's testimony was not, uh, not sufficient to be upheld in a court of law, it's a remarkable thing that Christianity has this redefining, in a sense, of the role of the woman in the culture and the importance of the woman in the ministry. A fifth theme, and then we move on to the text that I want us to see. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is the fifth fifth theme of interest for Luke. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is front and center from the very beginning of Luke's gospel account. It's incredible whenever we read and see that in chapter 1, verse 15, I have the, the references listed there for you on your outline. We're told that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. In verse 41 of chapter 1, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 67, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verses 25 through 27, Simeon in the temple was guided by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus is the supreme mediator of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus was endowed by the Holy Spirit in a special way at his baptism. In chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. All of these and much more point to the necessary and the important role of the Holy Spirit in and through Jesus' ministry and in and through the ministry and the life of the church. His concluding words to his disciples in Luke chapter 24 and the opening words in, in, in Acts are instructive for believers of all times, of every age. When the Holy Spirit is upon you, you will be clothed with power. And so we see Jesus is the Savior of all people. From Adam, there is one human race. All nations, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, are universally loved by God and and the desired recipients of his salvation. And so over the next year, as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, it's exciting to think about how we're going to see God's word intersecting our lives, our culture, our daily walk with him. But this morning, I want to draw our focus to where Luke ends and consider his big picture. Luke invites us to enter the discipleship journey with Jesus. And as we read through this story this morning and and through the gospel of Luke over the next year, we'll we'll be challenged by the way that Jesus enters the story of humanity. He enters in order to change us and to transform our relationship with God will be challenged by the way Jesus encounters us in our everyday lives and gives us a clear and glorious purpose. And we will be challenged to enter the story and to live inside of the inexhaustible story of God's kingdom and his work on earth among all people, among all nations. And so this morning we 
fast forward from where we've been over the last five weeks, the Advent story, the coming of Jesus, we fast forward from there in chapters 1 and 2 to the end, to just after the resurrection, which takes place in chapter 23 and chapter 24. And although Jesus has been speaking throughout his ministry about his death and resurrection, the disciples had been slow to grasp the significance of his words. And so I want to read through this text, 24, chapter 24, verses 13 through 49. I want to read through the story. And then after, I just want to make two simple observations. For those of you who are worried about time, I'm mindful of the time this morning. So follow along as I read from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 49. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened, right? That's Jesus' crucifixion in the days days past. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us that they, were, they went to the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us even went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did our, hearts, did our hearts not burn within us while we talked on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? 
They gave him a piece of broad fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. When we approach this text at the end of our series in Luke, we'll give it more extensive treatment this morning, as we approach this passage, I think we can understand the emotional trauma that the past couple of days had dealt to the disciples. They were downcast, afraid, deeply disappointed. Verse 17 and verse 38 tell us that. They stood there looking sad. They were distraught. We can hear the disappointment and the sadness in the conversation between Cleopas and the other disciple while they're on the Emmaus Road. And interestingly... Jesus himself approaches them and inquires about their conversation. We're told that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Beginning in verse 19, they recount all the, event, all the events of Jesus' crucifixion that had happened just days before, and they end with this phrase, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, right? I mean, we see that their, their hope is gone. I'll never forget when I first spent time at Abbey Lane Retreat Center, Wayne Spears, who was the director then, he was giving me a tour of the prayer gardens, and one of the prayer gardens is named the Emmaus Road Prayer Garden. And as he told the story of Cleopas and his companion walking along the road, he focused on the way that Jesus encountered them. But they didn't realize that it was Jesus that they were encountering because their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then how, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself. Then as they were at the table, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they knew that it was him, and he vanished from their sight. And I was just thinking about this as I was standing there in the prayer garden. And then their comment to one another afterward was, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Then Wayne left me with a question. He said, have you ever encountered Jesus and not recognized that it was him until after? I pondered that for a moment. He said, do you ever want it to happen again? For me, those two questions were startling I put myself in the position of those two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Think that they had encountered Jesus in the midst of their walking and hadn't recognized him. As I think about that, you know, and we can be so encapsulated by our agendas, like the disciples, by our expectations, our ideas of religion, like the disciples our ideas of what it means to be a good Christian or a good follower of Jesus, that we actually miss Jesus. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But it appears that he wasn't. 
in spite of the testimony, they come back from the women at the tomb and then the others of their band who had gone to see the empty tomb. It wasn't him. Another thing is we can be so weighed down by emotional trauma, our difficulties, personal crises, feeling like it's the end of the world because of the most unfortunate circumstances come upon us that we actually miss Jesus in the midst of our difficulties. What does James tell us? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you counter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith develops endurance. Let us ask wisdom of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and he'll give it to you. The disciples were so weighed down by what they had hoped and thought just four days before. Just four days before, they had it all figured out, only to have their weak ideas of a Messiah crushed by uncertainty and death. That's what was staring them in the face. The first observation is this. It is possible to know the facts of the gospel without knowing the face of the gospel. It is possible to know the facts of the gospel without knowing the face of the gospel. They knew the facts. They recited them to Jesus. They knew all about following Jesus as he had just led them for the last three years. But they couldn't recognize him. Their inability to recognize Jesus goes hand in hand with their inability to believe the report of the empty tomb. We see in verses 19 through 24, they tell Jesus all the facts surrounding the crucifixion, the hope of of redemption for Israel, the reality of the empty tomb, the report of the vision of the angels that Jesus was alive. They knew these things from the prophets and the scripture, but their hope had been extinguished. I think if we're not careful, Christians today in the church in the West can be lulled into the pattern of approaching Scripture simply to reaffirm what we already know about God and his salvation of the world. But friends, let me, remi- let me remind you that what you know of God in your relationship with him is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to knowing God. It's only the tip of the iceberg. God is so much more vast than our feeble understandings of him, than our minds can comprehend or grasp. And there's so much more that we have yet to learn and to know of God who has graciously revealed himself to us through his word. So we ought not come to God having figured everything out. Instead, let us approach God as as learners, as disciples, ready to hear afresh from his word. As one commentator says, when we, we need to be prepared for him to rebuke our foolish and faithless readings and to listen as Jesus encounters us in his living word. Like Cleopas and the, the other disciples, we too are invited to listen to the exposition of, of the Bible as they listen to Jesus exposit, expose the truth, teach them the truth of Scripture. We too are invited to have our hearts burning within us as fresh truth comes out of the old pages and sets us on fire for serving Christ. Luke emphasizes what the church all too easily forgets. That careful study of the Bible is meant to bring together 
mind and heart, understanding and excited application for our lives. This will happen as we learn to think through Scripture and as we enter into God's redemptive story going on all around us. Because God's redemption isn't just for you and for me. It's for all nations. It's for our children. It's for our family. It's for our spouses. It's for our co-workers. It's for our neighbors. And it's for all people to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus intends to use us to advance his kingdom in the world. So let me ask you, have you ever encountered Jesus and not recognized it was him until after? Do you ever want that to happen again? Remember, it's possible to know the facts of the gospel and not know the face of the gospel. The second observation this morning is this. It is impossible. It is impossible to live out the call of the gospel without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to live out the call of the gospel without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus identified the disciples' two greatest troubles with two questions. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? We know the answer to those questions, don't we? I think we know the answer because too often this describes our demeanor. It characterizes our Christian lives. It's because the disciples lacked faith to live and engage in God's mission. That's why they were troubled. They lacked faith in who God said he was and who Jesus had claimed to be. They lacked faith in this way, much like the disciples in the days following Jesus' crucifixion. God's people have often found themselves living with the same uncertainty. We question, or even worse, we doubt the role and the objective of the church. We ask things like, where are we supposed to be going? What are we meant to be doing? What are we about? What are we for? What's our vision, right? There are probably a ton of vision sermons happening across the United States this morning. And I'm not saying that's bad, but what I am saying is what Jesus is teaching here, as he's teaching the disciples. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. He answers these questions. What are we supposed to be going? Where are we supposed to be going? What, what are we meant to be doing? What are we to be about? What are we for? Look in verses 45 through 49. I think this is the commentary, the, the helpful, instructive commentary for the church. Verses 45 and 46, uh, we see biblical theology. Then he opened their minds to understand scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This is what we say, study, connect, and serve, right? Like, this is coming to Scripture and studying Scripture. He opened their minds to understand the Scripture. How does the Lord do that in the life of his people? Well, through the Holy Spirit, as we approach God's Word. So we ought to know Scripture, ought to know what, what God's Word teaches. He opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Scripture has testified to the truth of who Jesus is and God's redemptive plan. That Jesus suffered on the third day and rose from the grave, right? This is the message. It's in God's word. Verse verse 47, like this is the mission. 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to where? All nations, right? Audience participation time. All nations. That's what it says. To all nations. Beginning from where? Jerusalem. Thank you. Right? So, so this, is, this is the mission of the church, to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins from Jerusalem to all nations, from our city, from Baton Rouge, to, to all nations. This is what God has called us to be about. This is the mission. Verse 48, they're sent out as witnesses. Look at what he says to the disciples. You are witnesses of these things. Like you've seen it. It's happened on your watch. Now you need to go out and tell people. Go and tell the world. And so they're sent out as witnesses to serve, right? Under the authority of God, as handed down by the apostles who witnessed these things. You know what that means for you and I. We are witnesses of these things. We have the apostolic authority, the authority of God's word written before us that we might take this to the nations and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Here's the gravity of the call of the gospel on the life of every believer. Whether that's through the ESL ministry that we have happening here or whether it's through going to the nations or whether it's through encountering nations as as we go about our everyday life and our everyday routine. We start here, and we go out into the world. We begin in our community, in our neighborhood, in our families. The last thing, look at verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What is the promise of the Father? The Holy Spirit. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Verse 49 tells us that we need spiritual empowerment, that we can't live the call of the gospel in our own strength. We must be empowered, like the disciples must wait for the Spirit to come upon them. We, too, must be in dependence on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must be our empowerment to live the gospel out. If we're going to faithfully follow Jesus, we can't do that in our own strength. We must be dependent on the Holy Spirit's power. We must be dependent upon God living within, the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, leading us, giving us words to speak, like, like the apostles in Acts 4.29, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness. We, we need the Holy Spirit of God as we testify and share of the need for repentance and call people to seek forgiveness and to turn their lives to Jesus. This is spiritual empowerment. It's impossible to live out the call of the gospel without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus intends to use Christians, you and me, to advance his kingdom in the world. And Luke's gospel is inviting us to enter this story 
to take this journey with Jesus, to be encountered by Jesus and to encounter him as we take the gospel to the world. This morning, I I want to pray for us as we prepare to continue worshiping through the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread and the juice, the cup. Uh, And so maybe for you this morning, you've never come to a place in your life where you've surrendered your life to Jesus and you've trusted him as Lord and Savior. And you can do that this morning by confessing him, by confessing your sins, repenting of your sins, and seeking the forgiveness of Christ. You can do that, confessing that you believe in Jesus. And there'll be a time and a moment during music where you can pray, ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and surrender your life to him. If you have questions about that, after the service this morning, after we celebrate the Lord's Supper, one of, one of our elders will be on this side of the worship center by the cross, and we would love to speak with you about what it means and how to go about surrendering your life to Jesus. Uh, maybe for you this morning, you're interested in becoming part of this faith community. And if you have questions about that, we would like to answer those questions too. And you can come on this side and speak with one of our elders or find me and speak with me after the service. But would you join me in prayer at this time? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you, Jesus, that you have come as Savior of the world Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to endure as we run this race that's set before us. We pray, Father, that you would help us never to miss seeing you at work around us, but to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sin. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We don't want to try to live the Christian life without you. So fill us now, O God, lead us, direct us, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand?